use my axe. I'm hungry! Welcome to Get to Work, Hurley. This is the podcast for anyone who's ever been frustrated with the pro writing life. I am your host, Cameron fucking Hurley. I Somebody emailed me recently and said, you never introduce yourself like who the fuck you are. Like even they're in the description of the podcast or in the opening. And I'm like, well, I'm Hurley. Doesn't everyone know that? It's get to work, Hurley. Who else would it be? They had a good point. All right. In this episode, I'll be discussing how our society rewards psychopaths and assholes. Oh, yes. I know you're excited already. And I'm also going to talk about why it is you shouldn't give in to the pressure to be one. You're all encouraged to be jerks on this timeline and it sucks. It's stupid and it's not going to get us where we need to go. I've also just finished a very rigorous outlining process with my agent related to my manuscript for The Light Brigade, which is a time-traveling military science fiction novel. So I want to delve into the topic of plotting and outlining because that's something I've always really struggled with. I really want to address how if you're experiencing moments of despair, you know, in this process, it's probably not because you're stupid or a bad writer, but simply because, <laughs> to be honest, this task is really hard. Writing is hard, uh, and sometimes I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for the sort of work that we're doing and how we challenge ourselves. Finally, then, I'm going to end with some tips for finding focus right now, like focus on to actually do the fucking work, Hurley. I've really been struggling with this, and uh, I'm going to share some thoughts about what's helped me to concentrate on doing this work during these days where like breaking news is like every freaking hour, hour after hour, and especially Friday afternoons. All we do is drink during during the weekend because of the Friday news dump. Anyhow, I will also have a few book recs for you as well. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Let's talk about Jerry Goodkind. Ha, oh, sorry. This is my intro. <laughs> This is my intro to the assholes and psychopaths discussion. So hold my beer. So Goodkind recently posted about how bad he believed this cover was for his latest book. Whatever. First, it was not a bad cover. It was fine. It was a fantasy novel cover. Second, it was kind of pretty rude to do this to the cover artist and like the entire team behind designing his cover because he should have already let them know that he didn't like it before. Anyway, here, listen. I've never had a cover of mine come out without me being able to comment on it so that if it was coming out and they, they would have known that I hated it and it would no, be no surprise to anyone right at that point. L let me use this as an example. My biggest cover faux pas was having a whitewashed version of my initial God's War cover for my book God's War leak before I'd been allowed to see it. Just all of a sudden it showed up on the publisher's Facebook feed and I had not seen it. Once I was looped back into that conversation, after I was like, what the hell is this? Again, it was a, it was a mistake. It was, they were, <clears throat> that publisher was special and just basically just two frat dudes with 
problems. But once I was back into it, the cover artist, uh, David Palumbo, and the design team were all really gracious and mortified, honestly, and, and happy to fix it. Palumbo was great to work with. When I strongly rejected, you know, to a, a sketch for Infidel, which was the next book based on its symbolism, I was like, hey, here's why this doesn't work. And he was he's totally cool with it. He went back to the drawing board literally and we came up with another great cover. And I love those covers. I, You know, the artist was great to work with. Uh, people doing the design for the covers uh, were great to work with. They're, they're pulpy, fun covers. And, and at every point, I mean, if I'd really despised something, we would have addressed it then. You know, is Infidel's my favorite cover? No, not probably not. But we got to a good, happy medium. And it was a good experience overall. And I was a first-time novelist. I certainly got a lot of input into those covers, uh, and I did, I did really like them. So that's why this whole thing with Good Kind, and that's why I, I bring him up is, again, in Good Kind, I realize I should have told people who don't know, Terry Goodkind is like a fantasy author who's been writing for, I don't know, what's it been, 20 years now? This is why it feels like a little bit of a stunt to me. There's some Good Kind history here, which a lot of people don't remember. Like, come on, a lot of us were there. See, he started out writing this series called... Oh, it's one that starts with a vine. It's just it's boring as hell to try and read the first chapter. But it, but it sold really well. It's called uh, The Sword of Truth, which, again, it sold well. Lots of people liked it. We all need our comfort fiction. I read tons of comfort fiction. I love it. I read Conan novels, for God's sakes. And, and I have fun, despite the fact that it's problematic. Speaking of problematic, you know, Goodkind's entire series is sexist as hell. There's a lot of sexist things. I couldn't get through it. I've spoken to people about it. He wrote this entire series and he wrote this whole series and then did this spinoff, I guess, uh, that he was paid like six or seven figures for. That was like urban fantasy or something. It had like this, it was tangentially related to the Sword of Truth series, but it was set in the modern day. Anyway, he made a telling but bad mistake of basically saying in an interview that now that he was writing this urban fantasy, he was glad to be writing something that would be read by more than just the guys living in their mom's basements. Wow, way to insult your fan base. And and they did, they got pissed off. There was a bit of a backlash and that book I think only ended up selling like, I don't know, it wasn't a lot at the time, like 20,000 copies, which for me, right, would be great because I'm under advanced and I can sell that pretty quickly, but it's not a success if you've been paid six or seven figures for it. That was pretty much kind of, I don't want to say the beginning of the end because he still sells very well, but he did fail. Uh, he insulted his fans. It's a wonder he has a career at all. But again, lucky for him, new readers who don't know that he totally looks down on them keep buying his books. So, hey, you know, it's, it's a living. That's the great thing about only 20% of your readership being online is that you still have all these people buying your books and it doesn't matter. Now, all of a sudden, he posts this cover saying it's so bad. And the literally the first thing I thought was, oh, is Terry Goodkind still writing books? <laughs> oh, is he still writing books? And I'm wondering, what the fuck? You didn't have a writer in your contract saying you got cover consultation. Like, I couldn't imagine any book team slapping a cover on one of his things that he'd vociferously opposed for this very reason. You know, no team, no artist wants the writer getting online and seeing how shitty the cover is. That's why this feeling to me, again, Terry Goodkind still writes books. Th this was just one of those, you know, assholes gonna asshole moments. This was further reinforced when he then backtracked and said the cover was sexist, which literally I went, eh? 
uh, and that's why it was bad. And he was, it's not just bad, it's sexist. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not a sexist cover. There's some woman featured on the cover. She wears more clothes than a lot of men on fantasy covers. She's in an active position. She hasn't even twisted around to show her ass or anything like that. She's literally just standing there, like about to hack someone's head off or something. And I'm thinking, okay, I've, now, good kind, I've read sexism. I've seen sexism because good kind himself has been very guilty of it time and again. And this cover wasn't. So it was him being a dumbass. That's when I figured this was just him being an asshole to kind of get into the conversation in the news. I mean, like, again, just like I said, when was the last time any of us were talking about Terry Goodkind? I, I can't remember the last time my Twitter feed had his name on anything. Now we're, we're segueing into this topic, which is it got me to thinking again about how the new this new rage theater and i guess it's not new it's it's been around for like 10 years but it's really uh, been invigorated especially uh, since the election uh, and the years leading up to the election um it's this rage theater we've got in this country and it's really bleeding over into all of us trying to make a living as entertainers as writers that's really what we are is entertainers to get noticed in this field is tough to get noticed above the noise of the current political climate is even tougher. What many of us have started doing then is engaging in this asshole display of behavior. You know, the sad puppies fiasco at the Hugos is a great example. I'm not going to go over that. You can Google that one. Uh, there are probably half a dozen other writers I can name doing like the same sort of asshole performance theater to stand out. You know, the sad part is I can't sit here and say to you, hey, being an asshole is bad for your career. Lots of people want to say that. They, they say that online, and I want to tell them to fuck themselves because, shit, being an asshole can get you elected president of the United States. So let's be fucking honest. It's not about that, oh, being an asshole isn't going to get you ahead. It can get you ahead. There's no reason. Lots of assholes are very successful. And in fact, that's because capitalism rewards psychopaths and narcissists. That's how the system is set up. In order to excel, in order to win, quote unquote, a capitalism, which is there is no win, which is why we're all suckered, you must think in terms of short-term profit and you must regard people as things, as a means to an end. So you must be able to be able to pretend at feeling things, but to not really feel them. Uh, Weinstein is another great example. Pretend that you feel remorse or sorry for something when you do not at all. You need to get very good at that song and dance, very good at gaslighting people. That, that is capitalism. That's how people get ahead, by being psychopaths. So if we all live in that system, why shouldn't we all do that if that's what the system rewards? Why not just be a jerk to make money? Just because you're a jerk does not intrinsically mean then you will make money. Uh, it just may not keep you from making money. But it, listen, you can do what you like, but here's the thing. Unless you're a true psychopath, you're going to need to live with yourself at the end of the day. You're going to have to ask yourself at every step of your career what kind of career you want to build. I want to be an exceptional writer. I want to inspire and sustain the exceptional writers who come after me. I really want to have a legacy that outlives me. Yes, I would love to be rich. Well, we'd all love to be rich. But there are sacrifices I'm not going to make for money. There are pieces of my soul I'm not going to give up. I decided pretty early on in my career where all my lines were. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I call out assholes who are assholes when necessary. 
Um, there are a few people, you know, in the world that I will just blatantly be like, you're an asshole, like I just did. But you have to be pretty bad for me to get to that point. Mostly, I try to be a decent human being, uh, and I expect that from other human beings around me. And when they're not, of course, I will call them out for it. And I, I, so I, those, I found my lines where I'm just like, you know, if someone I feel is doing active harm, if I feel someone who's doing active harm, I need to speak out against that. There are things, of course, I don't, again, I don't want to write or talk about. Those are parts of my life that are mine. I'm also really big on this idea of creating the world you want, not projecting all the pain and the fear and the rage back out because you're just, you project that out and you're going to get it all back in. And I know that's tough. We don't want to put that on individuals. I absolutely agree. These are systematic changes that need to be made. At the same time, I can only control what I can control. I was at PetSmart, I believe, back in January. Money was really tight for us uh, back then. I had been sick with the flu for like two weeks. I got the flu and then I got bronchitis. And I wasn't able to finish my Patreon story for that month. So I had to scrape together, you know, which means I didn't get paid for the Patreon. And I had to scrape together like $1,000 for my medication that month and I go to PetSmart to get some canned food, um, canned dog food for my dogs. My credit card declines. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is so fucking embarrassing. And it just, it brought me back, right, to the times when everything is shit um, in my life. And so I go to use the second card. And that one declines, too. So I start, you know, again, so I start to dig into the bag. And I'm like, okay, you know, what can I take out? What can we live without? And the lady behind me in line says, hey. Don't worry about it. I've got it. Go ahead and put hers on mine. And I'm like, I'm tearing up. I'm like, oh, thank you. I'll pay it forward. And I did. And I do. I try to give generously when I can afford it, you know, of my time, of money, and of course, of simple human kindness. Kindness costs you nothing. It puts a little bit of joy back into the world, right? That's already harsh and terrible. This is something I feel like a lot of these these dudes especially don't understand about life. You know, they, they all want to talk about toughening up kids today and kids today, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you have no fucking idea what everybody's been through just to get to this point. I was talking to a relative of mine who said, you know, I'm really surprised that it's not women bringing guns and shooting everybody out with all of our mass shootings we're seeing. And of course, the issue with mass shootings is that it's an issue of toxic masculinity that we're seeing uh, it's like very again a social um, structural problem in addition to the gun problem it's telling young men that the only way to solve their problems is to shoot people and then making it easy for them to get guns but anyway that's a subject for another podcast I understand <laughs> what we all are struggling with and I understand that a lot of us to get to this place where we are in our lives to get to the success that we've had we have all seen a lot of shit and I think there are a lot of people who again this very narcissist psychopathic idea that no one has suffered as much as they have suffered no one can suffer as much as they have suffered and they don't believe the journeys and things that we have all taken they don't even think to ask or understand and again there's that's where there's there have been some moments where someone's interviewing some politician or something who actually hears these stories of people who have been through these horrific traumas and it's like I had no idea. They ha they have no imagination. It's like they can't they can't figure it out. So anyhow, we are dealing with narcissists and psychopaths and being an asshole like that can cost you friends. It can cost you connections, you know, peace of mind. But most of all for me, 
being an asshole, like, it puts absolutely nothing good back into the world. Like, oh, look at my shitty cover, shitty artists, shitty people, everyone's shitty but me. My success is despite the fact that I have such a shitty team of shitty people, all you shitters. And I'm like, wow, who wants to work with you, right? Who would want to work with you? And clearly, again, this person in particular is making money. Good for them. That's great. Again, tons of people are not even going to hear about this. Whatever. But do you want to be that person? You want to die alone and miserable and there's nothing left like behind you, but maybe some people thinking, gosh, it sure is nice you're dead and then you're forgotten and the world moves on. I don't want to be that asshole. (laughs) There are better ways to be seen. There are better ways to make money. There are better ways to create a legacy. And I want to postscript this with an important point, I think, which is saying me, I am not a fucking naturally nice person. I'm a fucking jerk. I'm a total narcissist. I was raised, I was, I, I'm one of the biggest misogynists I know. I've had to work on that forever. I was raised to be super selfish. And I get why my mom did that. She raised us that way because she felt that was the best way to protect ourselves, right? And it's a sexist society. You need to look out for yourself first. But it was to an extensive degree. But I, but I get that. I get where she was coming from. It's just we veered it into a bad way. Uh, she was right in many ways and wrongs mothers, but I, I'm a big girl and I had to figure all that out and become the person that I needed to be. Because the problem with being a jerk, I found, is you aren't able to form real human relationships. You can never let yourself love anything or give up anything or just give anything. You keep everything held tight to you, all your resources. And when the shit hits the fan, it's just you. Selfishness is a super great short-term strategy. Again, like capitalism, right? It's this this very short-term, you know, rush to the finish and then everything explodes and we're all, you know, huffing gas and die. It's not so great long-term, again, huffing gas and die. And it has taken me years to work on this. And it's still a constant process. I have a ton of knee-jerk selfish reactions. I still think up needlessly mean things to say to people and I swallow them because I always go, is this useful? Is it kind? Is it necessary? You know, is this helpful in any way? And if it's not like, shut the fuck up, let let them carry on. And I, I, I go with that with a lot of things, even with my, my parents and my household. You know, my parents are 60-something years old. My grandparents are 80-something years old. If you think you're going to change these people's opinions or behaviors at this point in their lives, you are very wrong. (laughs) So, you know, if something is necessary, I will call out their racism when it's racist. But sometimes there are some things, you know, I'm like, you know, let's just let this go. They're living in their own, they're living their own lie and that's fine. The world is a fucking shit show. (laughs) Don't add to the shit show. Most importantly understand that if you're listening right now and you realize you've got your own like narcissism lack of compassion to work on it is possible to change that behavior it's possible to learn to do better even psychopaths can be taught how to function well in the world when they aren't rewarded for this shit behavior right i'd really like to see us as a society certainly but we you know starting individual movements you know let's start rewarding kindness And let's keep in mind that we're all going to die. We're all going to die, each of us. There's literally nothing any of these rich people or selfish people or anyone else can do that's any different. They are going to die too. Let's consider our legacy instead of that viral moment. So with that sort of 
business persona discussion out of the way, I'm going to take a drink first. I'm going to take a drink. And then I wanted to talk a little about craft in this episode as well. I'm working on a time-traveling military science fiction novel called The Light Brigade, which frankly has been kicking my ass. I kept getting to the point at which the events in the novel needed to start happening out of order and then getting stuck. I'd write some stuff, throw it away, endlessly revise what I had, write up a lot of circle diagrams, plug stuff into and back out of Scrivener and move stuff around back and back out of Scrivener, bang my head against the desk, rewrite stuff again, and finally I just sent what I had, you know, with a rough outline for the rest to my editor and my agent, and I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm a loser. <laughs> loser, I can't figure this out. I felt like a total failure. A total failure. In part, I know I felt like a failure because I'd had so much trouble finishing Broken Heavens last year, my fantasy book, and I failed at that. So it was like this double failure, like wham, wham, double whammy. The issue with this book, I felt, was very different than the issue I had with Broken Heavens. I was actually working on this book, like nearly every day. I just wasn't making a ton of progress. And I kept like literally writing myself into circle. I circle, oh, we're back again, in time loops. And I felt really stupid for not being able to figure out my own book. <laughs> it's my own book. It comes out of my brain. Why can't I figure it out? So my agent, who luckily reads very quickly, she got on the phone with me and said, listen, okay, like this first part you've got, it's damn good. The rest, yes, is confusing, but we're going to map it out just like we did with Stars or Legion. Cameron, just explain it to me. Let me have it. So I did. <laughs> and she was like, oh, shit. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is hard. This is kind of tough. And I was like, oh, thank God I'm not crazy. And I said, hey, seriously, Hannah, I have been working on this. I haven't been avoiding it. I'm literally staring at a big yellow notepad easel full of diagrams about this character hopping, all of these timelines. I can't make it work the way I want it to work. We talked through what we wanted to happen. And I made some notes and she made some notes and, and then she went back and I, and I shit you not. I, this is, I love my agent. She has the analytical mind and I've got like the creative like word vomit mind. She must have worked on this fucker all day because she kept sending me like email updates as she hit a wall like, wait, now there's three timelines. Oh my God. Now this character's taught in a time loop. And now, uh, and I'm like, I know. Welcome to my hell. It turns out her husband has a PhD in math and so helped her build, well, it's a complicated, okay, I, I don't do math people, I'm not analytical. But it's a complicated sort of like if-then statement graph thing. It has a name. Apparently it's called, and I shit you not, a directed Hamiltonian path through a bipartite graph. What it did was it helped her run through models of how this time travel would work. And if someone doubled, and again, if, if they're here, they can't be right. If-then, if-then. Anyway, it, listen, like they say in Looper, I'm not here to explain time travel to you. <laughs> I'm not here to explain time travel. But anyway, after doing that, she sent me like three versions of what we could do. I revised the third one, the one we agreed on, and then used her breakdown of like these missions and base scenes to set up like modular chunks of story in Excel, saying who the protagonist's team is and what's happening around them at each of these points in time. And then on the second tab, and that's this is actually why I didn't sell Excel as opposed to Scrivener because I wanted two concurrent things I could look at. Um, so on the second tab, I scrambled them up according to how we want them, how we want the reader to experience them. 
which I suppose is sort of a spoiler, but you know going in it's a time travel novel, so you can expect some of this. After I did that, I decided I wanted to do some time shifts uh, with someone else uh, in the story. And my agent's like, okay, well, I ran her through the graph, and we can have her do X or Y, but not both. And I'm like, well, whatever math says, <laughs> we'll do what math says. So now we've got something that seems to work more or less logically. I pretty much want to include this whole process and the diagrams at the back of the book so I can be like, see nerds, there's math here. I'm a real science fiction author. Booyah. After talking this year with my agent, so I realized just how hard on myself I had been. Circling around, taking it back, time loop. I thought I was stupid because I couldn't figure this out. I couldn't figure it out. I kept, I was writing in circles. I, there were paradoxes and three, again, and you know, it took three of us to make it work. And I haven't even heard from my editor yet. I'm sure, you know, he's going to chime in too with some stuff that, you know, we haven't seen yet. But what I'm getting at here is that suffering a couple of setbacks can really hurt your self-esteem. At least it did for me. (laughs) It sure hurt mine. But sometimes your biggest bully as you go forward with your career, especially you get to about mid-career or later, and it kind of ends up being yourself and how you determine your self-worth because you do live so, your work lives so publicly. And sometimes you live so publicly too. I travel quite a bit. We have a really weird job as writers. It's this profession where you must spend some time thinking very deeply about a thing, often alone, and bleed yourself into it. And then you have to present it to the world and the world does whatever the fuck it wants with it. It's like it's like watching dogs gnawing up pieces of your body that you've sliced up, you know? <laughs> In order to get like as far as I have on this book, I had to cut out social media. All the noise and voices, they were, ju- I was drowning. I was drowning in them. It was just, it was, it was too much. And I'd see my colleagues getting all these deals and going to all these events. And I just, I felt bad for feeling so tired uh, when I thought about all of it. I just, I felt behind. I felt like a failure. And I started like viewing other people's highlight reels, you know, while I'm deep in the trenches with my work. It was super demoralizing for me. You know, when you're that deep in the weeds, all you're doing is looking at people's success, not the actual work it takes to get there. And all of the people that I look at work incredibly hard. But when you're working incredibly hard, of course, all you see is people having fun (laughs) being successful. You don't see their work every day. You know, they're eight hours in their murder shed writing. And sometimes, you know, you really are building a complex thing that requires your full brain power and maybe the brain power of a village. (laughs) Someone with a PhD in math. It's not because you're lazy or stupid or behind or whatever. It's because you really are doing something hard that you haven't done before. And that's a good thing. That's like being ambitious. That's not settling for writing the same book over and over. Elizabeth Baer said something to the effect of how she's trying to write, or she does write, you know, the book that she's just not quite technically capable of writing at the time she starts it. But that's how she levels up, and it's how she pushes herself. And I've, I've been feeling that way certainly with Light Brigade, for sure. At my patron, uh, my Patreon, which is uh, patreon.com, Cameron Hurley, and it supports this podcast too, I uh, write a short story a month. And my favorite stories to write are my Nick stories. They are about this mercenary character named Nix, and it's a character who I've really come to know well. And all the plots are very simple quest plots. She's like a female Conan. That's how I always think of her. And I love writing them. 
but they're like popcorn writing. They're comfort writing. It's fun. There's joy in it. I love writing those every once in a while, mostly because, again, the structure is very easy. I wouldn't want to write only the stuff I was comfortable writing, even if, you know, maybe it's easier to do that because then you feel like, hey, I'm a winner. I know what I'm doing. Ha ha. I need to push myself because, again, it goes back to your mission, right? What's your mission as a writer? My mission is to be the best. And you're not going to learn how to be the best bright writer by only doing things that make you comfortable. And maybe the true test, right, of working on something great is self-doubt. N.K. Jemison has talked about how halfway through writing fifth season, I, she called up writer uh, Kate Elliott and was like, hey, you know, Kate, this book is fucking broken. I always put, okay, listen to me, when I, when I quote unquote quote people, I always put in more profanity than I'm sure they used. So just, just put a profanity filter. Anyway, she said something to the effect of, you know, hey, the book's broken. It's too hard. It's too ambitious. I don't know how to fix it. I just throw it away. And Kate helps talk her down kind of off the ledge because, you know, it's hard. It's hard because it's ambitious. You know, you can do it. We can do it. And sometimes it does take, again, reaching out to your colleagues, to your agent, your editor, and just being like, I am doing something hard. I'm doing something hard. And not feeling like asking for help is a sign of weakness, even though it feels like that. And maybe it will be taken that way for some people. But if we're going to level up and we're going to write our best work, we have to be able to admit when we need help and admit when it's hard and be okay with it being hard. Because I really do believe that the best work of our lives, the stuff we love the most, it isn't always going to be the easy stuff. When it comes to doing great work then, like genius work, I mentioned earlier that I've been having trouble focusing. Oh boy. And yes, that is true. I've tried using a timer, tried turning off social media, tried exercise, tried alcohol, tried low carb, tried never reading news, tried many combinations of all of this, but I've really continued to struggle with this focus. And especially, you know, when I'm working on these really complex projects, I need to focus. In digging into possible solutions, I found myself reading a lot about focus, you know, about ADD. And I talked in a a prior episode about organization, a book called Organization Solutions for People with ADHD. Really helpful as far as organizing my house in a a much better way. In reading about focus and about, I, I was reading also about how our modern technologies have really reduced our ability to focus, which I think we all realize intuitively but we're so hooked on our devices that it's hard to connect that logical knowing of something with a changing the behavior. And basically Twitter and Facebook and all these other social sites, this is their drive. Their drive is to keep you coming back again and again and again and spending your entire life there. That is really what they're optimized to do. That is, again, we talk about capitalism and being a psychopath and narcissist. They are all about training you to come back to their sites all day, every day for short term, again, short term gains. This is all about the short-term gains is to see make as much money as possible by sucking as many of us in there as possible. And I say that again as a marketer. This is what they do. It's all they do. There is no long-term benefit to society that they are looking on. And all those social sites have trained us to be more distractible than we have ever been before. We're rewarded for that distraction. Even mobile games, you know, that are made to be picked up and put down and, of course, have the fucking notifications they want to send you. Those service huge distractions. Like, oh, I'll just play my game, you know, in line or play my game. I do that all the time. And there are very few activities now, I found, that I engaged in that are pure focus. Like reading and writing, 
And that's about it. Painting, I, I have taken, taken up painting and I did find that painting helped me focus as well. Work that inquires in te- requires intense focus, not watching TV. Watching TV is very distractible, right? You'd be doing 16 things at once while watching TV. Those real craft creative projects that require intense focus are really good for helping retrain that focus, right? But even at my day job where I write for a living at my day job as well, and unfortunately as one of the things I do in addition to writing copy and stuff for you know websites and ads and things, I manage our, some corp social media accounts. That requires me to engage with a distractible world a lot. Even when I turn off my own social media, I have to turn on the social media for brands and, and you know reply to things and like things and interact and engage. That affects your focus. It, this is funny. So I actually once asked at work, like explicitly at our stand-up meeting, I said, listen, you guys, I need two hours of focus time to finish this big project I was working on. If you guys can just give me two hours without, again, we have an open office. Oh God, I hate open office. Anyway, open office. If you could just not bug me for two hours, then we're golden and I'm done with this. And I made it almost 45 minutes <laughs> before someone pulled me into a meeting. That was, it was just hilarious because it was the one time I asked, right? I said, you know, can I please just have this? Couldn't do it. And I realized that maybe my focus was getting worse because I had trained it or the world had trained it. It was not like me intrinsically. We also let's let society take the blame for a lot of these things. They are designed to do what they have done. And so myself and society has trained us and my, you know, to, to get terrible focus. I needed to retrain it. The last few weeks, I decided to try meditating, (laughs) which if you're from the Fight Club generation, you know, like me, you're thinking, think of the white ball of healing light moving over you. I had heard, you know, again, that it's a great tool for getting you to kind of spin down your thoughts and to focus on a single thing. Like you focus on like your breath or an image or a point on the floor for three minutes, five minutes, nine minutes, 20 minutes. And it asks you to do this again for ever increasingly extended periods of time. So I downloaded this. I looked for like best rated apps for meditation. I downloaded the mindfulness app and I tried a couple of these three meditations and I liked them. So I signed up for the premium version. And so the last couple of weeks, I've been doing like one to two meditations every day, usually like a short nine minute one and then another like nine to 20 minute one, like at night, right before bed. And you can choose background white noise, like waves, wind or whatever. And then you have someone like taking you through a guided meditation that focuses your thinking on very specific and the whole specific images, specific areas. And so it might be like you're thinking of specific areas of your body or focusing or concentrating or specific questions you want to ask yourself. I found it super helpful. This enforced focus like really has helped me retrain how I view the world. And it's also really helped me with my anxiety as when, like when I feel all of my thoughts trying to overwhelm me because I have a lot of shit going on. I have on any given day, there's like six reminder tasks on my calendar and I just feel overwhelmed. But every time I start feeling overwhelmed, I can bring myself back to like this single thought using these kind of techniques from the meditation. You just think like, focus on this. We're going to do this, this, focus just here, this. And I'm able to refocus myself and to really tackle the task at hand instead of getting so overwhelmed that I just don't want to do anything but hide under the covers. So that's been super helpful. And I hope, I hope perhaps it may help some of you also. 
it looks like we are nearing the end of this podcast. I did want to leave you with a couple of nonfiction book recommendations. I recently read two great books uh, by Dr. Pamela Nagami, who specializes in creepy diseases. Ah, One is called The Woman with a Hole in Her Head, and the other, yes, seriously, listen, The Woman with a Hole in Her Head. No, with a worm in her head. Oh my gosh, it's, I did it wrong. The Woman with a Worm in Her Head, that's even better. And the other one is Bitten, which is about how the bites of all these kinds of insects. <gasps> and a snail. There's there's a snail that can bite you and kill you. Did you know this, people? It can sting you. Oh, my God. You have to read it just for that. It, it can kill you. Anyway, all these things that can kill you. Listen, these are great resources for writers. That's why I'm including them. But, yeah, don't read them if you're squeamish or terrified of snails. As for fiction, I have just pre-ordered the Monster Baru Cormorant sequel to the wonderful book, uh, The Traitor Baru Cormorant, which I loved. Um, Not everyone does. It's tragic. So I know tragic queer romance uh, is not for everyone. I understand that uh, for triggery stuff, but oh, I love the character so much and I think the writing is brilliant. So I went ahead and pre-ordered that and I also blurbed a great book that's coming out this year finally called The Poppy War and then Emma Newman has a new novel called Before Mars and that is also on my pre-order list I'm really looking forward to those all right that is enough shop talk from me my friends it's time to get back to work